0: Man, I'm so bummed, bummed, bummed to be wrapping up this series today, but I am stoked. The Christmas is coming man Next week we begin Advent It's going to be awesome And as Amy was sharing Be thinking about a friend That you might invite During this holiday season Because it's it's certainly a time That for a lot of people That maybe don't go to church It's more of an accessible thing for them It's a comfortable space Because it's more familiar They're singing songs they know Everything else is going to be awesome I love the Advent season But I also love our current series That we are finishing today And so right now I'm going to ask you To go ahead and pray with me Because we're covering a ton of ground We've got a lot to do, so we want to get right after Let's go and do it together. Jesus, I thank you that these stories exist for our learning. They remind us of the ways that we are to grow, to be more like you, to make a difference for you, to inhabit your heart and your, your passion for this world. And so I pray that you will guide us and show us and teach us today, and uh, that we will be seeking you in all that we do. So we love you and thank you and praise you in your perfect name. Amen. All right, and what's, I hear a little noise down here. What am I hearing over here? Is that just the fan there? It's the AC, so it's freezing outside, so we turn on the AC for you. So, so no. now here's the thing, man, I, I, I love, I love the Sunday School stories. In fact, if anything, uh, the two sections of the Bible I love the most, the first is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're like my jam right there but the other thing i really dig is the old testament and and one of the characters that i love in the old testament is the story today it's all about this man named daniel and i love daniel because he is so representative of what i think christ is really like and so where a lot of the characters in the old testament they're kind of derpy they're kind of a mess they do a lot of dumb stuff daniel's one of the few where i look back in the old testament and i go This dude was solid. This guy understood the values that eventually would be displayed in the person of Christ. And so this is why I love him. And today we are looking at a lot of his life, but it really ends with Daniel and his Den-O-Lions. That's where we're going to be kind of hanging out today. But to understand kind of how we get into a story, where we're going to today, we have to understand kind of where we've been or how we get to his, his space kind of in the, the historical timeline. And so last week, we were introduced literally to the kingdom of Israel. So up to that point, it was the land of Israel. It was the land of God. But as soon as there's a king, it becomes a kingdom. And so we had Saul and then he has kind of his issues And we have David and he certainly had his issues Then you go to Solomon who certainly had his issues as well But then after Solomon the nation divides, okay? And so there is like a sense of civil war There's kind of strife within the clans Ten of the clans drive to the north and that's kind of their space Two of the clans drive to the south, that's their space And it's just a mess after Solomon And so, for the most part, every king in the northern territory is a derp. They're a mess. They worship other gods. They don't follow the true God of Israel. They just kind of go unhinged. But even the southern kingdom is kind of a mixed bag. And so, by the time that Solomon is kind of transitioning out, he's laid the groundwork for all of these different problems. But in the southern kingdom, during this particular season, there's this king Josiah, and the dude is solid, man. He does these reforms, he kind of reinstitutes the law, he reconsecrates the temple. He is a stud, and during his reign, this young little baby is born named Daniel. Sadly, Josiah does not live for a long, long period of time, but he's killed in battle, and no sooner is he dead, another king rises to power, and it's again back to these pagan races where the people that are there want to worship the idols in Israel more than they want to worship the God of Israel. And that leads us then to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, During the third reign of Jehoiakim." he's the king of judah which is the remaining territory king nebuchadnezzar of babylon came to jerusalem and he besieged it and and, and so what you have to understand a little bit here is again that northern kingdom that had the 10 clans of israel up there uh they actually got punked about 136 years before So there, the Assyrians, they stepped in and they extracted all 10 tribes out of the region and kind of just brought them into captivity for the Assyrian Empire. But now you have the last two clans there in the south trying to hold their ground, stand their own, but now Babylon the Great is sitting on their doorstep. And for 18 months... They are blockaded and they are assaulted. And all the way through, it's like the splendor of that city is slowly being brought to rubble. And what is truly tragic is that God, when he envisioned the city of Jerusalem, it was meant to be a city on a hill. It was meant to be a beacon of light for all the nations where all the cities of the world could look at that city and say, that's what we're supposed to be. That's where we're going, where God dwells with His people in beauty and symmetry and balance and hope and glory. That's what it's supposed to be. But now Israel has failed in its responsibilities. It's become a haven of idols and lies. And so on August 14th, 586 BCE, the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over the king of Judah. And he permitted some of the sacred objects from the temple of God to be removed. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his gods. Now in that little window there, I want to highlight two things that get stated. The first is, is notice that it says, the Lord gave victory over. In other words, the Lord made possible for Nebuchadnezzar to beat the Israelites here. And this doesn't happen because Israel had bad policy or a bad military. No, it's because Israel has a bad theology. Right? It thinks it can take the one true God and bolt other gods on and kind of creates this whole mess. And so that's sort of the first problem that they have. The second problem is, frankly, they didn't learn the lessons of the northern territory. Because back in Deuteronomy 28, when God sets up kind of his contract with Israel, he tells him, he says, listen, if you follow me, I'm going to bless you. If you ditch me, I'm going to curse you. So this is our contract together. You seek me, I look out for you. You forget about me. It's going to be ruin, right? That's going to be the reality in the space that they inhabit. But Israel hasn't listened, neither the north or the south, and so now God's judgment is coming. But understand, as it happens, God doesn't bring this as some jealous lover who's just unhinged and just kind of beating them all for it. No, if anything, what God does so often is He uses a tool of restoration right to get their attention it's like going to the woodshed but it's meant to bring them back right so it's not about being punitive as much as it's about being corrective and so even what's about to happen to israel is designed to kind of bring some challenge to break them down to size to create a level of humility and then bring them back into the space of god's good graces and the land but for now it's going to be rough And in this, the second thing we see is that he's permitted some of the sacred objects to be taken from the house of God and put into the empire of idols, right? So think about this. If you just modernized it for a minute, imagine that uh, the, the nation state of Iran decides to invade the United States. And for 18 months, they're laying siege to Washington, D.C. And then finally they take it, and they go into the Oval Office, and they remove the desk of the president. They go into the House, and they remove the seat of the speaker. They go to the Supreme Court. They take the gavel of the court. They go to the archives, the National Archives, and they take the Declaration of the Independence. They go to the Smithsonian, take Lincoln's Bible. They take the Star-Spangled Banner and then bring it all back to Iran. They put it in their own little sacred space of a a museum. And there it's designed to say, you know what? We bested not only America, but we bested it through the power of our God, Allah. Uh, Imagine... That world, and then imagine then as Americans, if then God spoke to us through a prophet and said, "And I made that possible." Right, that is what this remaining group of Jews are facing. That's a tough pill to swallow. But then it gets rougher still. It says then the king ordered Asapaz, the chief of staff. To bring back some of the young men from Judah And the royal family and other noble families He brought them to kind of utilize them For the greatness of Babylon Now when it says chief of staff Some versions say chief of the eunuchs Which is actually a better translation And so here this chief of the eunuchs Is supposed to select only strong Healthy and good looking young men and needs to make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. So it's kind of like, all right, take Harry and Meghan's kids, and Kim and Kanye's kids, all the royalty of America, bring them to Iran, and we're going to use them for our purposes. See, in this context, what's happening is that they are converting them. They're going to take these young Jewish men, and they're going to convert them so they can serve and fulfill the national interests of the Babylonians. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azarath were uh, four young men who were chosen from all of the tribes of Judah, and then the chief of the eunuchs, or the chief of staff, renamed them with these Babylonian names— Daniel would be Belshazzar, Hananiah would be Shadrach, Mishael would be uh, Meshach, and uh, Azariah would be called Abednego. Now, we hear all these names, and some of them we know better than others, but we have to remember, in their world, names mean things. And so, for Daniel, his name meant, God is my judge. For Hananiah, it was, Yahweh is gracious, for Mishael, it was God who is God, or who God is is what God is. is literally the way it's translated. And Nazariah was Yahweh will help. So, so notice they all have the name somehow of God in their name. There's a tribute to the God of Israel embedded into how they are defined. But now they're given all new names. And for Daniel, his new name is Bell protects his life. So the highest deity of the Babylonians is now embedded into his name. Next, it is commanded of Aku. After that, who is what Aku is, and then finally it is the servant of Nebo. So these different young men had these God-ordained names, and now they're in Babylon, and Babylon says, we're going to give you new names in accordance with our gods. And so they strip them they stripped them of the very essence of their identity and placed upon them a new pagan identity. And the whole thing was to try to embed Babylon into their hearts, but God would not be moved in them. That's what you have to understand. For all of the shenanigans, all of the crazy, all of the trying to, you know, kind of indoctrinate these guys, they're not giving in to it. Because unlike much of the Jewish population that had abandoned God, these young men are devoted to God. But, The devotion will be tested It says, train these young men In the language and literature of Babylon They are to be trained for three years And then they'll be entered into royal service But then there's something interesting in verse 17 It says, God gave these four young men An unusual aptitude for understanding uh, In every aspect of literature and wisdom And God gave Daniel the special ability To kind of interpret visions and dreams As they come around And so the agenda of Babylon for these four young men is clear, right? We want to make sure that we embed our values into your life. So what this is for them is like a liberal arts degree from pagan Babylonian university, right? That's what it is, PBU. And at PBU, they're going to learn history and language, law, mathematics, economics, literature, art. But all of this is embedded with a cultic-type training, There's a cultic overlay to the whole thing, a pagan filter. Because at the end of the day, they don't want good Jewish boys, they want good Babylonian boys. In the spirit of Judaism, maybe in some ways, representative of that new region that they inhabit, but nonetheless, they want these guys to be Babylonian. And I look at that and I go, you know what? That's going to be a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Right? Because Babylon will advance a lot of very compelling ideas. And frankly, if these four guys just go along with it, it's going to be a very comfortable life. You're going to have a good, right? It's going to be pretty much easy street if you can deliver. But then I notice what's said in the middle of that whole text it said, God gave them aptitude and ability. Now, this is what I think is so wild, right? When it came to literature and wisdom And kind of interpreting dreams and everything else Because here's the deal Instead of God saying, oh, you're going to a pagan region I will shield you from all that information Instead God's like, oh, you're going to a pagan region I'm going to give you you the ability To understand it even better than they do To work in the confines even better than they can I'm going to leverage you to do things You didn't know possible Because I have an agenda for you Now here's what I love about this I I think it challenges some of our Christian um, perspectives in in the modern world. Where I think sometimes what we think our job is is simply is just to avoid, block out, don't consider any broken ideologies. But I look at this and I go, or maybe there's an alternative. And the alternative is not to embrace those things, but to understand them better than the world around us understands them. Right? Because that's a different way of doing it. Like if you understand the philosophies of the world better than the world understands its philosophies, you can work in the confines of that to do God things in the midst of those things. Or to highlight God things through those things to leverage for God's purposes. And so the boys, they've been busy, man. They've been crushing the books, and now it's time for the final exam. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king talked with them. And he was like, man, these guys are impressive these four are head and shoulders above the rest. This says, whatever the king consulted uh, of them in any matter, right, requiring wisdom or balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians or the enchanters in his entire kingdom. Now, part of me is like, magicians and enchanters? Is this Hogwarts suddenly? It's like, Dobby's free! No, it's not Hogwarts. The magicians here are like kind of sacred writers, and the enchanters are are kind of those who are trying to consult the spirit world to give direction and yet for all of the skills that they may have had it paled in comparison to the Fantastic 4 like these four dudes they bring game unlike anybody else now I want to take this for a minute and I want to sidebar Right, Because I think there's a a huge amount of value to be pondered in kind of this particular section. And it has to do with what I was just talking about a second ago uh, when it comes to kind of cultural ideology or identity and how that can be leveraged for kind of Christ-like kingdom values. Because I find when it comes to culture, um, there's always the question of how does a person who is God-oriented Interact with a world that is the opposite of god-oriented. It's kind of itself oriented how, how do we navigate what do we do in light of culture? And I think there's different responses I think for some the response is I need to be against culture That's probably the first response and that's very sectarian So i'm going to step away and when I look at culture, i'm just going to judge it. I'm just going to condemn it I'm just going to warn of it. I, I don't want to interact with it. I, I don't want to leverage it. I just am going to stand against it. So these are the types of people that say, you know what? I'm going to live off the grid. I am going to homeschool my kids. I'm going to have a militia. I'm going to wait for the government to fall. Like that kind of personality. But they're like, I just oppose everything that I see in the world. And that's one approach. The other is maybe the opposite approach, which is, well, I'm going to live for the culture right i'm just gonna kind of swallow it hook line and sinker so we call this syncretism where it's like i'm just gonna marry all of the pieces and i'm gonna get excited about everything that it promotes right everything the culture celebrates to ensure its security its prosperity its legacy i'm all in so maybe it's trusting its idols more or loving its Superiority more, promoting its principles more, wanting its future more, or defending its values more. And this can be any number of things, any number of things, right? It can be anything from kind of elevating its financial values to its sexual values to its moral values, its political values, patriotic values, nationalistic values, militaristic values, social values, doesn't matter. It's just saying, yes, that is the better way. It's the better way than Jesus. Its way is the surefire way. Now, here's the thing about these two examples. I think they're extremes. And if I'm honest, I think believers and unbelievers alike, we, we can kind of fall into kind of leveraging both, right? Like we support the things that we like, and then we oppose the things that we don't. But the grid that underlies that is because what I want ultimately for myself is comfort. I want my American dream. I I want my best life for my family and I'll kind of hobble together whatever it takes to establish that in my ranks or with my tribe. But as followers of Jesus, I don't think we have the flexibility of either option one or option two. I think Jesus seeks a third way. And the third way that I think Daniel and his friends even inhabit is this idea to live in the culture for the good of the culture. To live in the culture for the good of the culture. And even in the church, we, we have a, an action statement that says we seek to do things for the good of the city, right? That we want to be a part of the environment we're in so that we can be a part of shaping the environment to be an even better thing. And so the idea here is to take our love of God combined with the skills and abilities given by God so that we can make much of God toward others who are the image bearers of God. Everybody on this planet bears the image of God, and our mission is to connect with that reality and help them see the God who is a part of their life that they may not follow and may not worship, but we use all of our resources so that they can come to experience him and life through him. What that means then is that we engage the culture with the rules that Jesus has given us to engage. This is why I'm always pushing. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, Fruit of the Spirit, Paul's definition of love. Like all of those things matter because those are all the kingdom values that we are to bring to culture and then from that hopefully lovingly, graciously, caringly, and investedly shaping the culture around us. It might be small, like our own little community, our neighborhood, our friend group. It doesn't have to be grand like the United States of America. It's just where we inhabit our, our lives and how we touch the lives of others. That's the way we try to do this, right? Bringing tangible and spiritual transformation to the culture, not by endlessly mocking it or coldly criticizing it or perpetually fearing it, but also not by just kind of caving to it, giving into it, falling in love with its ideals, but enriching it, Right? bringing added value to it. In fact, Jesus in John 17 emphasized that we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And Christians love to say that. That's like almost like a catchphrase of ours. But there's tension in what Jesus commands there. Because here's the thing, we're not allowed to be out of it to avoid being of it. I don't know if you caught that. We're not allowed to avoid it to not be of it Like oh if I just Stay away from it Then I'm doing What Jesus wants me to do He's like no, no no I left you in the world That's what he says In John 17 Now I want you To be protected In the world But I've left you In the world To make a mark Because here's the thing I've been thinking about more uh, Jesus doesn't leave us On this rock So we can simply Make money Right Have stuff Take trips Enjoy life And then read our Bibles Go to church And, and, and vote Family values So that we can feel like Hey we're being in it But not of it Right Like we can feel good About ourselves No that's not what He wants us to do He left us here So that we could bring Kingdom transformation Again we could bring Real tangible And spiritual good To invest into the culture So there's a net positive That we'll be like The scouts That when we all leave it We left it better Than the way we found it Because God cares About this world God isn't like, I hate this world. He's like, I so love this world, I sent my son into the world. And now you all go and act as my son for the good of the world. You make your investment into the culture because your desire is to redeem it. Now I say all this because I go back to our fantastic four of Daniel and friends. I want you to think about where they're at. They have been conquered, subjugated, isolated, castrated, indoctrinated, and their identity has been eradicated. Right? Some people go like, what, Daniel was castrated? Yeah, who was he with? The chief of the eunuchs. All of those guys were. right? So you imagine just how assaulted they have been. They're taken from what they know. Their names are changed. Their masculinity is erased. And now they serve a pagan king. And yet in that space, they're gonna use the gifting God has given them. They're gonna bring their A game to do what? To bless the culture of the babylonians that to me is radical i like how many of us after going through all of that would be like yeah i'll serve you faithfully none of us none of us would right but they're taking the better way and route and i think it's because what god really seeks of his people is that we would be a subculture that blesses and benefits and betters the existing culture that we are embedded in. Instead of chafing under it, resenting it, just wagging our finger at it, that we would invest our love into it. Here's what Jeremiah told the exiles going into Babylon. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, so God's the one sending them into this space, I also think it's interesting that Peter, as he starts his first letter, calls all of us exiles. We're all a bunch of Daniels in that sense. He says, here's what I want the exiles going from Jerusalem to Babylon to know. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But in this, he says... Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, in its welfare rather, you will find your welfare. See, here's what I love about this. I just try to always like kind of get down to the core. And I think this is such a wild thought because what God is saying is, I want you to go, I want you to do good, I want you to pray, I want you to invest in this pagan Godless thing that's Enshackled you I want you To care for it That takes selflessness Man selflessness I think it's huge That was God's mission for them And frankly I think it's Jesus's Mission and marching orders for us I really do Right like again when I read the Sermon on the Mount Or I think about the greatest commandment right Love God love your neighbor as yourself Right Simple, but hard to do. And you go, okay, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus breaks that down. He's like, even your enemy is your neighbor. And what you do with them is you love them, you do good to them, you pray for them, you bless them. Right? So just as much as Daniel had to lean into this idea, so too we're all called to lean into this idea. We just don't have the luxury of basically having enemies in our life because every enemy is meant to be loved as a neighbor and a friend. In fact, Jesus gave some really strange advice in relationship to the, some of this, where I go like, really? This came off the lips of Jesus? Yes, it did. Luke chapter 16, after he gives some pretty difficult, challenging instruction, he says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Like Jesus says that. He says, then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. He says, if you're faithful in little things, then you're going to be faithful in large ones also. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with great responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And so he's bringing this all together, like using your stuff, using your skills, using your earthly things to do kingdom things in that space. He says, it's the real test because nobody can serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, or you be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So before Dale Carnegie said, hey, here's how you win friends and influence people, she's like, here's how you do it. This is how we live. This is what we do. And as I thought about this, I thought, here's the key point that I think he's getting at. And it's that if we eat up this world's resources, but we don't use those resources to make the world a better place, But rather I'm just using those resources to make my family have a better space Then we've missed the purpose of why god gives us the resources that we have and I don't just mean money I mean skills and abilities and everything right all the tools that god has given us, right? I think we squander those things god's like you you don't really understand why i've given them to you You don't understand how to use them. You haven't represented my heart And you haven't obeyed my commands. We're meant to make investment We're not meant to just enjoy all the things of this earth, and then one day we go, whew, at least we then die and go to heaven and enjoy stuff more. No, we're meant to move the needle, to put points on the board, to be a part of Christ's campaign in this world, which is what? Bringing heaven and earth together. Really even praying that they would touch one day, and that we are the instruments of that process. Right? So that's what I believe God wants to do with Daniel, and I believe that's what God wants to do with us. But now then we get into the weeds. What do we do when Christian conviction and culture, they clash? Right, uh, What happens when living in and doing good for uh, is going to ask you to give up your heart for God, ask you to do things that would be sinful in relationship to God, or violate your conscience in some way. Like, what do we do in that space? Well, for Daniel, it's going to happen twice. It's going to happen early in his life, and it's going to happen again later in his life. And yet, I think what happens on the front end is what's going to help define what he does then on the back end. And so here is now the tension. This is during his college years. We see that the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself By eating the food and wine given to them by the king And so he asked the chief of staff for permission To not eat these unacceptable foods Now this isn't because he's watching his waistline This isn't about like love handles and everything else It's it's not health It's actually about an honorable diet He's still a good Jewish boy There's dietary restrictions On top of that the king's food Is sort of commissioned to other gods And Daniel's like I can't do that So what is Daniel to do? He says, well, in verse 9, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. So Daniel spoke with the attendant. And he says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. At the end of 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. So the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days days here's what i love about this this is what every christian on social media should go and read because i notice he does four things first of all in this is his tone right in his tone he doesn't take a stand in his tone he doesn't make a demand he actually simply makes a request so he's not ranting and raving he just say hey can i put this idea out there next he does it with tact because he doesn't do it in public for everybody to see and read he does it in private as a conversation On top of this, he has thoughtfulness. He doesn't endlessly decry the problems of the king's food. Instead, he offers up a pretty reasonable solution. And then last, he has trust. He trusts God to kind of prove his point, but he also trusts the attendant to be wise and thoughtful with the data that he has. In fact, this reminds me of something later that Peter writes in the New Testament as far as being wise in what we do. He says, For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority, whether king is head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. You have to understand, when Peter writes this here, he's talking about Nero, who was a true wingnut in every sense. He was a very dangerous and destructive guy. And even there, Peter's like, whoa, but make sure you respect him. Why? for it's god's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you so he's not saying hey they're right he's saying but this is how you win them this is the rightness you inhabit to win their wrongness he says yeah you're free but don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil well what would evil be then for peter it would be to not respect everyone to not love your Christian brothers and sisters, to not fear God, and to not respect the King. Those would all be ways we wouldn't honor God. And see, I think this is important. Again, I'm trying to make this very applicational today, but we live in a culture of offense and pro, kind of just, you know, fighting everything, and, and, and everything has to be like somehow attacked and taken on, pointed out, whatever else. And then in this, there's even like this rejection of authority times. We're like, I'm not going to submit to anybody. It doesn't matter if it's the left or the right. It's like everybody just doesn't want to submit, right? But then here we see there's this otherworldly approach that we want to live and embody and protect in our own lives. Daniel's doing that very thing. And so at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better, better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided to the others. What I dig here is that Dave, D- Daniel was able to produce a small social change in his little sphere of influence, but it changed nonetheless. And it wasn't a change that was brought on by criticizing, nor by caving. It was just thoughtful, it was prepared, it was collaborative. He was trying to make peace in the midst of it. And from that, he succeeds. But here's the question then. What if the stakes are bigger? What if the issues are weightier, right? It's not as simple as food. Maybe it's something more dramatic. Well, now we fast forward from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, right? And and here's Daniel. He's roughly now 70 to 80 years of age at that point, point in the story. And he served different leaders of babylon and now babylon has fallen to the medes so it's another change of authority another change of power but during that whole time when you read the story of daniel he has faithfully served the pagans man still just doing it right He's not picking a bunch of fights. He's not throwing down a bunch of rules. He's not trying to be difficult in the equation. He keeps leading this this charge of, I'm going to bless. I'm going to do good. I'm going to seek the welfare of the Babylonians. And now the Babylonians are out of power. They're falling to the ground, right? And the Medes are stepping in, and his world's turned upside down. And in chapter 6, it says, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, And he appointed a high officer to rule over each province The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators To supervise the high officers and the project Or to protect, rather, the king's investments And so you're like, okay, Daniel's having to get a switch up again What's he going to do? How's he going to react? Well, Daniel soon proved himself more capable Than all the other administrators and high officers Because of Daniel's great ability The king made plans to make, kind of place him Over the entire empire so Daniel's like, new group of people, new set of pagans, last verse, same as the first. I'm going to keep doing the next right thing. I'm going to keep making the investment. So here's this Hebrew noble who becomes a Babylonian advisor who's now a, a kind of this, this administrator over the Medes. And from this, the king's like, I think I'm going to put you in charge of everybody because he's just delivering, man. And what I love again about this is the whole time he's not bitter, he's not complaining, he's not griping, he's not picking fights, he's not resenting, he's investing. And I think that's great because, you know what, God just calls us to do things, not because the climate's right, but because the cause is good. Always, if the cause is good, it doesn't matter if the climate's right. It's the same for us. In every circumstance, we can't say, well, the circumstance is more primed to be Christ-like. No, it's like, we're to be Christ-like regardless of the circumstance. We're to act, react, live like Jesus. In Daniel's world, not everybody was as noble as he was. It says, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything, or criticize, or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Man, what a pain when you're trying to dig up dirt on your political adversary, and they've given you nothing, right? That's not the world we live in nowadays, it seems. But they could not find either neglect or some type of impropriety. Nothing. So what do they do? Well, they really attack the depths of his character as they concluded our only chance for finding grounds of accusing daniel will be connected with the rules of his religion which you could read over the top of that and miss the fact that what this means is that daniel was very open about his religion he wasn't ashamed of his religion and he was faithful to his religion he executed his faith in that space so yes he's helping pagans but he didn't become a pagan Right? He stayed faithful to God. And now these guys are banking on his religious faithfulness. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius! Now we got an agenda. We are all in agreement. We, administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, mine is Daniel, mind you, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty... Will be thrown into the den of lions And now your majesty Issue and sign this law So that it cannot be changed An official law of the, key, of the Medes and the Persians That cannot be revoked And so King Darius signed the law A couple of fast things First of all The law even for the king was binding So if he signs it into law He can't violate it I know we all think Oh kings can do what they want Not Persian kings They were bound by the law the second thing this law was temporary. It's only 30 days. It's not going to last forever because even these officials are like, I'm not going to pray to Darius for the end of time. Like they want their own gods back too. But it's meant to kind of have a trap. And in the trap there is the prospect that if you violate it, it's not the death penalty, it's the pit penalty. Realistically, if you end up in the pit, though you're going to die. But this is important to understand that if you go into the pit and you survive the time frame, You've served your time. Most everybody gets eaten. But if you don't, you've served your time. Penalty is paid. You can move on. Right? But it can all be avoided if you just for 30 days pray to Darius. And then after that, you can go back to your own ways. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual In his upstairs room, with its window open toward Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. So notice, he neither protests or privatizes. In other words, what he's been doing for decades, he does still. He doesn't alter cores. He doesn't feel like he needs to change things. He just, he's his own man, right? And what's he doing while he's praying? He's giving thanks to his God. See, I think about this. If I was in that space, I'd be like, uh, how about some retribution, God? Or how about some rescue? But instead, what's he doing? He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. And I think this is valuable, especially as we're a part of, like, the Thanksgiving weekend, right? Where it's just a good recalibration to remind ourselves that so often in life, I think what we try to do is chase down things that cause the feeling of thankfulness. But Daniel here, he chooses to be thankful regardless of if, fe- if he feels those things. It's like he's just committed to the idea that, you know what? I'm going to rejoice more than I replay the wrongs or more than I kind of reflect on my losses or more than I resent my foes. He doesn't do that. He's just he's going to be thankful. And I think somehow in this there's value because when there's thankfulness, that leads to peacefulness, which leads to greater faithfulness. And so all of that is working for him. And so Daniel is thankfully and faithfully praying while his foes apparently are tattletaling. So the officials went to Daniel's house. They found him praying and asking for God's help. That's not what he was doing. He was thanking God for his goodness. But they're like, oh, we can leverage that. He's going to get his God to beat you, Darius. And so they went straight to the king and they reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law? I love this, man. Like, did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands as an official law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be revoked. And then they told the king, that man Daniel one of your captives from Judah is ignoring you and your law and he's still praying to his God three times a day so these guys are dirty players right so they kind of set the king up for this and then they're kind of holding him to it like ah you did it it's not us it's you I know you like him but it's on you because you set the law right so they're just total tricksters right hearing this the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel and so he spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament In the evening, the men went together to the king and they said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. You did this. But Daniel nonetheless is trying to find a legal workaround. And I think it's amazing, right? Like the offense is Daniel wouldn't pray to him, and now he's trying to figure out a way to save Daniel. This says something about Daniel's character in light of how the king perceives him. Sadly, the lawyers can't find a workaround, and so... At last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. I think that's wild, man. Here's this king, worships other gods, gets prayed to as a god. A- 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 and this king is, is hoping, he's hoping that Daniel's loyalty to his god will solicit a rescue From his God. That is his heart. And so the sentence is served. Daniel is placed among the lions, and then a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seal of his nobles, so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused the usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Now understand the stone isn't put over that So Daniel can't escape The stone's put over it So other people can't step in And rescue him out So this is again Just part of the legal decree And as Daniel is alone with the lions Darius is alone in his thoughts He can't eat He can't sleep He can't play It says he's fasting here Which then maybe there's some prayer To which I'm like Are you praying to yourself? Because the law binds you to 30 days To That's weird but okay but his thing is, man, if Daniel makes it to the morning, this is then paid in full. So the very next morning, early on, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, right? So this is passion. Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you served so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Again, I think this is incredible. There, again, there's this pagan king paying tribute to Daniel's God. I mean, I, honestly, th- to me, this is so powerful, right? And, and I think what this is telling us is that what was so amazing is that Daniel's witness was so compelling. The king is hoping that Daniel's God is the real deal. It's legit. To me, I just go, man, that's what I want to be about. I want my apologetic in life to be, man, I am just so like, like in the, the zone that people are like, I hope your God is real, I want him to be real for what I see in you. It is so attractive, kind of this idea of an appealing apologetic. Daniel inhabits that. I want to inhabit that. And so the king is frantically calling out. He's seeking for signs of life, and the Daniel answered, and he said, Long live the king! My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty And the king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den And not a scratch was found on him For he had trusted in his God What I so appreciate about this Is what was the accusation Daniel's not loyal to you What's the first thing Daniel says Long live the king He was loyal And then the sentence was Man he prays to another god Throw him to the lions But now the conclusion is Wow his god has rescued him from the lions That's a pretty big testimony And while he was pronounced guilty, he's actually found innocent, and he is unscratched because his faithfulness was unscathed, right? He was just in it to win it. So his faith is tested, God is elevated, the king is persuaded. But see, this didn't happen because Daniel was just a stud on this particular day. It happens because Daniel was faithful every single day. He had a faithful prayer life, a faithful private life, a faithful public life. Maybe from this it teaches us one of the final lessons. And this is a hard one, but you have to just sort of own it. And that is that Daniel was not rescued from the pit. Daniel was rescued in the pit. And here's the thing we all have to remember. Sometimes God won't take you out of the pit. Or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God doesn't take you out of the fire. God sends you straight into the fire. He stacks the odds against you. So he gets the credit for rescuing you. See, I I don't like the fact that sometimes God's like, Matt, I'm gonna put you in the pit. Right, But that's what he likes to do That's the space he wants us in And sometimes that's where he is most highlighted And like Daniel Jesus said his followers would face Some blowback And when we face the blowback We don't fight back Take back, push back Because that sets the kingdom back No, we do it differently We rejoice, we obey, we pray We stay the course We keep seeking to win our enemies over Instead of just beating them out that was Daniel, overcoming worldly wrong in an otherworldly way, doing basically kingdom right. So here's the conclusion of Daniel's part of the story. After the bad guys are thrown in the lion's den, they all eat them up. Clearly the lions are hungry. This so is then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you, and I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people, he performs miracles and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Here's this pagan king, again, declaring that Daniel's God is the living God, the saving God, and the personal God. And from this, Daniel was allowed to live a happy and healthy life. Now, does that mean that for all of us who do what God calls us to do, that we are always guaranteed reward for our faithfulness? Absolutely, yes. Yes, it's true. That is absolutely the case. Does it mean that we will have that reward in this life? No guarantees there. Not everybody's story ends as Daniel. In fact, you see that at the end of the book of Hebrews. It's like this whole list of people, and he's like, man, some were faithful, and they had all the blessings of earth, and others were faithful, and they got punked out of their gourd. Like It was just awful for them, but everybody was rewarded by God. And it's from that that the writer of Hebrews then transitions into chapter 12 and gives us the inspiration that we are all to live by. And what is that inspiration? He says, man, having been surrounded by such a vast group of witnesses in the Old Testament, man, run the race with endurance, right? Strip off the sin that gets in the way and look at Jesus, let him guide your path. And he was the example to us. He lived it, he did it. He he fought for it and he delivers. And when we live like him, man, we will be used by him. I close with this. The world doesn't need more conservatives or liberals. It doesn't need more culture warriors or woke right fighters. It doesn't need more petitions signed or books that are banned. It doesn't need more conspiracy theories or uh, fear-based accusations. What it needs is just simply people that wanna be like Jesus, right? To, To be like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to hold to the gospel of peace that is the message of Jesus and to make a difference in the world because Jesus has made a difference in our lives. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you, at least in my own world, for all the vast challenges that I had this week in the story of Daniel. It just kind of, I was going, kind of, how much is going to come of this? And in the end, I'm like, man, I have so much more work to do, but I want to do it in your spirit. We want to do it in your spirit. So help us to live like you, to live in the spirit, to be faithful to your words and your word in your heart. Help us to be change agents, not critics, but contributors for the cultural good in your name. We thank you. Amen.